0: Welcome back, everyone. I'm Phil, and this is another podcast edition of Bookie, a casual diary of various lessons, topics, and ideas I'm thinking through out loud. Today's piece is called College Reunions and Mimetic Desires Why We Want the Things We Want, and Why Do They Tend to Be Things Other People Have. Hopefully, it's a fun one. Let's get started i recently attended my college reunion in las vegas of all places and the whole experience is just begging for a bit of reflection reunions are admittedly an odd topic to write about but i figured everyone can use a break from my web3 soapbox and read something a little more introspective reunions force you to revisit your past and Not only do they promote reflection, but they can also come with enough awkwardness to prompt a thorough examination of your psychological quirks. Understandably, everyone feels a bit uneasy reconnecting with people who remember a less mature, less evolved version of themselves. Leading up to the event, we cope with this anxiety by echoing those cliché critiques of class reunions. Why am I paying to see people who aren't in my life anymore? I'm already hanging out with the people I want to see. If I go, I'm only going because I want to see Shaquille O'Neal DJ. That last one is unique to my situation, but worth mentioning since it's the rationale I cited most often. It's also ironic in hindsight because I never actually made it to the show for hilarious reasons we won't get into today. Irresponsible mishaps aside, I'm really happy. I didn't let the prospect of bad small talk and awkward encounters stop me from making the trek to Vegas. The allure of a school-sponsored weekend in Sin City was simply too tempting to pass up. Reconnecting with old classmates did inspire the sort of positive emotions these events try to manufacture. I got nostalgic remembering the good old days with people from my freshman dorm, I got excited making sincere plans to reconnect with old friends at a future time and place, and I walked away with a general admiration for how impressive some of my classmates are. But it wasn't all good times and good feelings. I'd characterized those three days in Vegas as an encapsulation of my time in college, an overwhelmingly positive experience sprinkled with bouts of negative self-talk. There were definitely moments that weekend where I felt, I don't know, insecure, unremarkable, maybe even lost. Needless to say, there are lots of smart cookies that went to MIT, and while I'm certainly no schmuck, I'm definitely not the sharpest tool in MIT's proverbial shed. It's been five years since I graduated and I thought I'd sorted through some of that inferiority complex, landing somewhere more self-assured. And yet, I found myself in certain social encounters not feeling smart enough, not feeling cool enough, not feeling like I was doing enough with my life in general. Only this time it wasn't comparing what score you got in your last test or which party you got invited to. It was seeing someone's passion project turn into an incredible startup. It was hearing about someone's last promotion and the house they just bought that I can only dream of affording. It was seeing how someone, given essentially the same diploma and an equal amount of time, could advance so much farther in their careers, relationship, and life. On a number of occasions, I found myself asking, am I making enough money? Why haven't I accomplished more? Why can't my life be this put together? I didn't want to just acknowledge these negative feelings, I want to start piecing together why this underlying need to measure myself against others surfaced so acutely. So, fair warning, this will be an unusually personal piece. It was also really hard to write. I powered through a ton of writer's block hoping each idea I can crystallize into words would foster some personal growth and maybe even offer a deeply intimate perspective on how I approach life you know, in case that sort of thing might be interesting to you. Fortunately, I wasn't totally unequipped to take on this challenging journey of self-discovery. We'll start this reflection by talking about a great book I read about a month ago, Wanting by Luke Burgess. We'll start there with a hopefully interesting overview of this 20th century philosophy called mimetic desire. Using that theory as our lens, I'll then painstakingly try to answer some deeply personal questions like, Why do I compare myself to others? And where do I go now that I've realized these things about myself? This won't be a diagnosis of every type A person's psyche, just my own. It's not a prescription on how to live your life, nor what it means to be quote-unquote happy. It's just simply me writing to figure out who I am, what I believe, and what I want to do moving forward. Medic desire. Have you noticed that your personal goals tend to reach this irreproachable status whenever you share them with others. Want to run a marathon? People applaud your determination. Want to start your own company? People praise your ambition. Want to quit your job and go off the grid? Minimalism is rad, man. Goals are deeply personal, so no one publicly scrutinizes them. But that also means we never scrutinize our goals. We never ask why we have these goals in the first place. Desire desires a theory about human behavior credited to French philosopher René Girard. Girard argues that human beings model themselves after the people around them. We learn to want the same things other people want, just like how we learn to speak the same language or abide by the same cultural norms. This seems simple and intuitive. It's a theory that we can easily nod our heads to while simultaneously underestimating its powerful influence on us. Most of us are aware of how social pressure, groupthink, and celebrities influence our preferences, but Girard argues that we're not just influenced by other people, but that we consistently mimic those around us. Everyone is subconsciously on the lookout for models to imitate, and when we find them, we don't just copy what they wear or how they talk. We subconsciously mimic their values, the goals they strive towards, and their personal definitions of what constitutes a good life. I don't expect to convince you that the theory explains all of our desires. I'm less interested in finding a grand theory to explain all human emotions. Rather, I want to offer this idea as an opportunity to pause, reflect, and ask ourselves, why do we want the things we want? That's exactly what I'm going to do in this next section. Why do I want what I want? I'm really fortunate to have two very loving and thoughtful parents. Naturally, they were my first and most obvious mimetic models growing up, spending a considerable amount of time explicitly shaping my beliefs and values. Be respectful, clean up after yourself, and most importantly, always take your shoes off when you enter the house. But beyond just internalizing morals and etiquette, I also mimicked much more subtle behavior that I carry to this day my parents never take days off. Even in their 60s, both of them are constantly on the move, always on to whatever it is that they deem needs to get done. Growing up, I saw them work through holidays, exhaustion, and even illness. As a result, I still carry some amount of guilt whenever I'm not doing something productive. They would also never see a doctor, call a plumber, or borrow money. My dad wouldn't even ask the grocery attendant which aisle we could find the can of Spam. My parents powered through adversity on their own, not expecting anyone to actually care enough to help. As a result, I also have an unreasonably hard time asking for help. Our parents have these seemingly innocent impulses that become really consequential to how we navigate our world. I've seen parents make snide comments and reaction to political news on TV or confront coaches at sporting events in front of their kids. These patterns of behavior become blueprints for our children, who then mimic and internalize them as valid ways to handle conflict and adversity. Parenting is hard, might actually be the understatement of the century. At some point, we realize our parents aren't infallible superheroes and we start seeking other models, looking to our friends and people we see on TV. If you look hard enough, there's likely a model for almost every aspect of your personality, your personal style, the way you speak, and the look and feel of your home. Imitation of superficial things is part of everyday life and usually harmless, but it's those deeper models of mimetic desire, the ones that influence our goals and our values that have the most profound impact. Models are most powerful when they're hidden. If you want someone to really become passionate about something, they have to believe that desire is their own. We like to think that we can choose our goals completely uninfluenced by others. In reality, we're subconsciously on the lookout for models while simultaneously denying we need any. When someone ascribes value to a particular achievement or behavior, we strive towards those same status symbols. Each generation does this a bit differently. As a white-collared millennial, we showcase our late night out, the beautiful meal we're having, and our Instagram-worthy vacation. Yes, we want wealth, fame, and access, just like previous generations but we want to do it without acting like we want it. Evidence of effortlessly thriving in life is the white-collared millennials version of a Rolex watch. Although I'll admit a Dyson vacuum seems to almost approach luxury brand status at this point. Proximity plays a critical role in who we subconsciously model ourselves after. We don't view celebrities like Elon Musk or Kim Kardashian with envy. They're abstractions that seem to be playing a Different game of life entirely. When people are separated by enough space, time, money, or status, there's no way for us to seriously compete for the same opportunities. The seeds of unhealthy personal competition are actually more likely to be planted by people within our world. People who look like us, grew up like us, and subsequently aspire towards the same expressions of value. It's our friends' vacation photos, their PR on Strava, or their new job broadcasted across LinkedIn that inspire self-doubt and insecurity. They're symbols of personal freedom, career success, and seemingly effortless excellence that our generation values so much. These symbols can be completely intangible, and yet we still view them as some sort of scarce resource. We covet that lofty title of being the best in class along some axis of life. Naturally, the simple fact that we can't all be exceptional implies some degree of competition from those who want the same thing. So let's go back and give a play-by-play of one particular interaction during my college reunion to really hammer home what we just discussed. I'm at the Aria Chandelier Bar and run into an old classmate. We have the sort of distant friendship where we follow each other on social media but hardly ever interact day to day. I was in the middle of ordering a whiskey, thinking, you know, a stiff drink can make any potentially awkward small talk more bearable, before my friend comes back uh, with a beer in hand. Now all of a sudden, I realize I want a beer too, so (laughs) what changed? My friend didn't remind me of a subconscious inner longing for a Bud Light. I wanted one because... He won one first, and I later justified it with rationale like, well, you know, beer's cheaper, or it's just better if we're drinking the same thing. It was my first innocent mimetic impulse that quickly spiraled into more substantial territory throughout our interaction. Naturally, we started talking about work and what we were up to. I learned that my friend had just accepted a job offer for a hot new startup. He received an $80,000 boost in salary, a stupid amount of stock that would make him generationally wealthy if they IPO, and some new fancy title, director of AI infrastructure or something that sounds really important. Because I follow him on Instagram, I also knew he'd just flown in from the Amalfi Coast, which I later learned in the conversation was the vacation he promised that he'd take his girlfriend on. Damn, what a great guy. None of his accomplishments, Come as a surprise. He's always been an impressive human being, intelligent, thoughtful, and frustratingly modest. Any emotionally evolved human would just be happy for him. And yet, as I smile and tell him how amazing all that sounds, I feel that tugging sense of anxiety. Shouldn't I be making an extra eighty thousand dollars? And also, what the hell? How does his job sound so much more demanding than mine? And he still has time to vacation. Am I falling behind? Did I choose the right path in life? How are we the same age and yet he's so far ahead of me? Oh wait, I took a gap year and he graduated early, so he's actually a lot younger than me. Five minutes ago, I didn't want a beer, I wouldn't know what to do with an extra $80,000, and I didn't even know where the Amalfi Coast was. But now, someone just like me has signaled how valuable these things are, and now I have to value them too. Mimesis amplifies our fears, anxieties, and negative emotions. In this instance, someone similar to me modeled the career, money, and lifestyle goals that I desperately wanted to imitate. And the moment I realized they weren't within my grasp, I reflexively constructed my own set of valuable traits to avoid reminding myself that I was somehow a step behind. I wouldn't like working at that company anyways, I tell myself, despite strongly considering applying that company a few months ago. I bet I can cook better than he can, I tell myself, carving out a new plane of competition. I'm taller. That one felt good. I was doing everything I can to differentiate myself, spitting this internal narrative of being best in class along some arbitrary dimension. I kept telling myself that I was one of a kind, above frivolous comparisons, when in reality I was forging my identity relative to someone else. That sudden, poignant sensation of uncertainty sparked a lot of subsequent self-reflection and the genesis of this post. I realized that I still have this nagging insecurity of not feeling like I was good enough. While this negative emotion fueled my work ethic and ambition for most of my life, it never allowed me to pause and ask why I was working towards those things in the first place. It's not a whole lot of time to be introspective when you feel like you always need to catch up. I can only speak for myself here, but understanding my magnetic desire gave me that opportunity to reflect. Looking back, there's a pretty long list of desires motivated by what others around me valued. I wanted to be a college basketball player because that was a crowning achievement for every high school athlete. I wanted to dress a certain way, be more outgoing, and be more chill because that's what people around me seem to value. I told myself I needed to have a certain salary or job title by a certain time frame because that's what high-potential, high-performing product managers strive for. Would I have wanted any of those things had it not been for the people around me? There's no way to know for sure, but I'd say probably not, and certainly not to the same degree. Obviously, we shouldn't disqualify these things as inherently bad goals just because of the role of memetic desire. They say the biggest predictor of wealth is whether you're around other wealthy people. Some of those good outcomes have to do with the inherent advantages and access an ambitious network provides, but I'm willing to bet people also benefit from that group valuing ambitious career and personal goals. Personally, I would have never considered applying to MIT, working in tech, or even moving to New York had people like me not aspired for the same things. I'm lucky in the sense that these decisions have had an extraordinarily positive impact on my life, despite making them without any serious reflection. I'm convinced that a better understanding of mimesis can inspire you to achieve more, while also preventing the burnout of constantly running on the hedonic treadmill. Lately, I've been thinking a lot more about what's next, and I'm hoping this reflection will be valuable in that exercise. So what do I do now? If I had to give a personal mission statement for this post, it's to work towards achieving goals that are personally meaningful while minimizing the negativity of mindlessly imitating mimetic models. Thought a lot about how I can translate this knowledge of mimetic desire into clear behaviors that'll actually help me accomplish this. Unfortunately, despite two months of thinking and writing, I still don't have any mind-blowing advice. The best I can offer are these three habits, behaviors, or mindsets, I'm still not sure what to call them. My previous posts have touched on them, but I think they're worth revisiting since there'll be things I'm going to be more mindful of. And those three things are understanding my core motivators, not needing to be the best, and just being more present. Let's go through each one. Understanding my core motivators. Our core motivators aren't always easy to uncover, especially since magnetic desire exerts this constant gravitational pull that can warp our definitions of what it means to be happy. Core motivators are the difference between things that fulfill us versus things that just give us some surface-level enjoyment. They're hidden deep beneath the fleeting, impulsive desires that dominate most of our lives. Speaking purely for myself here, My very unscientific definition of what constitutes fulfilling has three things in common. One, they require active engagement. I took some concrete action where I was the main protagonist as opposed to passively experiencing something. It's the difference between just reading an interesting book, enjoyment, versus figuring out what the things I learned mean to me, fulfillment. Two, they make me proud. I did something with excellence, by my own estimation, and nobody else's. They're activities that require me to stretch myself in some way. Sometimes that progress leads to a tangible achievement, other times it's just something that gives me an internal sense of pride. Three, they're vivid and memorable. My personal litmus test is being able to wake up the morning after and still feel a deep sense of satisfaction about the experience. Even after considerable time has passed, just thinking about those memories brings back some kind of joy. I'll provide a few recent examples to really hammer this point home. Finishing a blog post despite struggling to find the time and the words to articulate my ideas. Preparing for a critical meeting and then having someone thank me for how that somehow helped them to do their job better. Cooking for my parents and seeing their smiles after they came back from work to find food on the table. Thematically, my three core motivators appear to be learning, creating, and building relationships. I want to spend the rest of my life seeing how I can do more of those things. Not needing to be the best. This title is intentionally hyperbolic, and it's an idea that's been personally hard to swallow, given how much I loved sports and competition growing up. At various points in my life, I felt the need to be the best athlete, student, and the coolest kid at the party. Giving up the need to be best in class at something just feels fundamentally wrong to me at some core level. Like, if I'm not trying to be the best at something, why am I even bother doing it? I'm slowly coming around to the idea that being world class along some arbitrary dimension may not actually be as fulfilling as I had imagined. Yes, I still want that promotion, that salary bump, and that European vacation I can show off on my Instagram. I still have this powerful urge to be someone my friends can point to and be like, wow, this guy has his life together. But I don't want to mindlessly pursue these coveted aspirations. I'm forcing myself to pause and ask, why do I want this? And making sure those achievements tie back to my core motivators. Without activities that tie back to them learning, creating, and building relationships, I'll just be left feeling empty and chasing the next thing. For me, it's slowly learning the difference between striving towards excellence and feeling like you need to be the absolute best. Being more present. Don't expect that next goal or achievement to unlock some new tier of happiness. It likely won't, and once you achieve it, you'll quickly find a new mimetic model that'll inspire new desires. Being more present for me means acknowledging that I have a lot to be grateful for, a wide open space of opportunities to learn, create, and build relationships. There are paths to achieving my goals and striving towards excellence that are consistent with the core motivators that make me deeply fulfilled. Everyone's on their own deeply personal journey to figure out what makes them truly happy. And I hope this piece gave you some valuable insights into mine. Thank you so much. Oh, <sighs>